Well, good morning again. Uh, if you've got a Bible, please turn to Psalm 90 and follow it through when you get there. Happy New Year to you all. I wonder if it will be. Have you got any doubts about whether it will be a happy new year? Well, a couple of our world leaders have announced their plans for this year just a few days ago. Mr Putin said, Moscow must strengthen the military potential of strategic nuclear forces, especially with missile complexes that can reliably penetrate any existing and prospective missile defence systems. Well, that's a comfort, isn't it? <laughs> and then... Mr Trump responded some hours later, the United States must greatly strengthen and expand its nuclear capability until such time as the world comes to its senses regarding nukes. Delightful. We uh, have nine countries in the world have nuclear warheads at the moment. There's about 15,380 in the world which is enough to wipe out the world's population several times and leave the Earth uninhabitable for hundreds of years. The Yanks and the Russians have about 7,000 each. The Russians have got a few more than the Americans at the moment, uh, but that'll be sorted. And some of the other countries that have them are good friends like Pakistan and India and North Korea. So what do you do about that? What do your neighbours do about that? I think our neighbours have beer and then all of us have things like cricket and tennis and co cooking shows and all that sort of thing to help us cope with these things and keep our mind off it. But uh, since we're a church, let's have a look at Psalm 90. That might give us a different view. Now, in your Bibles, it's probably headed a, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. But as I said, when we introduced the Psalms a few weeks ago, those um, titles are not uh, original and they're not necessarily correct. And most of the experts actually think Moses didn't write this Psalm. But in terms of the content, there's no real reason why he couldn't have. But some things look uh, as if they're a bit newer. Anyway, let's start with, make a start. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. The writer is talking to God and he starts by calling him Lord. And this is the Adonai word, meaning your master or ruler. It's, it's not the Yahweh name of God. That comes later in the psalm. But here, the psalmist is acknowledging that, Jesus, that, sorry, that God is his authority his absolute authority. And then he says, you've been our dwelling place. Now, if, since God is a spirit, that's a strange thing to say in a way. You're where we live. You're our home. But when you think about it, what are the characteristics about our dwellings? What do we want in a dwelling? We want shelter. We want safety. We want security. We want peace. We want comfort. We want joy. A lot of people's homes aren't really providing those things these days, but that's what we look for in a home. And the psalmist is saying, you're the one who provides all of these things for us. God has always been the provider of shelter, security, safety, peace and comfort for human lives. And there's an immediate challenge here. What are we trusting in? 
uh, for these things. Is God ultimately where we find these things? Or are we looking to our career, our health, our super, our fancy homes with lots of deadlocks, our insurances? There's nothing wrong with having super or a career or insurance or deadlocks. But what are you ultimately trusting in? Are you trusting in these things that we have, the money that we've got in the bank, or are we trusting in God who's been the provider of all these things? We need to remind ourselves that he is the provider of all those things. Is our trust in him or is it in something less than him? Let's hope not. Verse 2, Before the mountains were born or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. It might seem a little bit pointless to be telling God these things about himself, but it's perhaps the most important thing you can ever remind yourself of. God has always been there. Before there was any material universe, there was God. And into an eternal future, God will always be there. Millions of people don't believe that now. So there are still some fools who think, who made God is a really clever question. In fact, it's nonsense. God, as he revealed himself in the Bible, is the only self-existent eternal being. And you can't make something that already exists. And God has always existed. There's never, there was never a time when God did not exist. So that question, who made God, is not clever. It's nonsense. Well, this verse is the antidote to thinking about all that could go wrong in this year. God has told us that he's always been there, that he knows everything, including the future. When Daryl brought us Psalm 139, we saw that God knows the number of days each of us is going to live. He knows all that will happen to us this year. Anything that does happen this year is something that God has allowed to happen. The Putins and the Trumps will only do what God allows them to do and we have to trust God and not be afraid. Well, having focused on the eternal nature of God, the psalmist is then struck by the shortness of our human lives in verse 3. You turn people back to dust, saying, Return to dust, you mortals. A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. We know from Genesis 3 that death has come to us because of Adam and Eve's sin, but here it's also clearly something that God commands. He's the one who decides when it's time for us to return to dust. There's a huge push for voluntary euthanasia in our country at present. It's an example of man wanting to be God and control the future. There are some horribly sad, suffering deaths happening, but there's also an old legal proverb that says, hard cases make bad law. This means that you shouldn't make laws to suit the extreme cases. In these verses, God is the agent who takes away life. Unfortunately, the do-gooders who want to reduce suffering by introducing these laws don't believe in our basic sinfulness, which is the real risk with euthanasia. God is outside of time. He's 
got everything under control. The writer is struck by the difference. A thousand years to him is no different to one day or even just a four-hour shift in the night. He's outside of time and the past and the present and the future are all present to him all the time. It's mind-boggling, but that's how God is. Verse 5. Yet you sweep people away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass of the morning. In the morning it springs up new, but by evening it's dry and withered. Human life is so brief by comparison with eternity. Where are we going? What happened there? Let's go back a bit. There we are. We're like a shoot sprouting in the morning and withered by evening. And that is so different from God. He's eternal. Our lifetime, even our whole life, whether you live to be 100, it's as if you just sprung up in the morning and were dead by that afternoon. If you start thinking about the difference between us and God, the length of our lives might be the first thing you notice. But before long, you'd have to notice the holiness and purity of God and how different we are with our selfishness and our sinfulness. And that's what the psalmist goes on to next. We're consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. Any Israelite from Moses' time onward would have been very conscious of how serious God's judgment is. Think about a whole generation of adults having to die in the wilderness because they refused to go into the promised land at the first opportunity. Think about the massive sinkhole that God created to swallow up Korah and all his rebellious uh, friends when they rebelled against Moses' leadership. Sin makes God angry. He can't help it. It's a direct result of his holiness. Indignation there in the second line is a very good word. It describes the anger we feel at something that should not have happened. When a nine-year-old boy dies after being hit by a drunk driver on Christmas Day, we feel indignation. Mind you, it's been most impressive to see the, part, the father of that little boy uh, hugging the driver who did that. But nevertheless, indignation is quite appropriate to something like that that should not have happened. And God feels that every time we choose to do something against his will. And the writer points out that the sins that we manage to hide from other people are out in the open to God. We think we've got them in a dark cupboard under the stairs, but the psalmist says that they happen in the blinding light of God's presence. Isaiah 6 taught us that in God's presence, our uncleanness becomes overwhelmingly obvious. Are we spending enough time in God's presence to become aware of our sins and deal with them? Or are we not spending enough time there? It's a, an important question. Are we noticing that God... Uh, I was thinking just this morning, it might be an idea if you're about to do something you know is wrong, to think if you're at Buckingham Palace and you're sitting there and the Queen with her fairly stern look on her face sitting there, would you do it in front of her? Well, 
God in his presence uh, is much more uh, terrifying than being in the presence of our queen. So what the psalmist is pointing out here is that all our sins happen in God's presence. He sees them all and we need to be aware of that when we choose to do wrong. Moving on, we come to verse 10. Our days may come to 70 years or 80 if our strength endures, yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass away, pass and we fly away. In the year I turned 21, there was one bloke in our class at uni who was 25. And we were all 20, turning 21 that year. And we thought his life must be nearly over. <laughs> He seems so much older than us. Now, with my older brother turning 70 this year, God willing, it all looks very different. Little kids getting from four to five, it seems to take eternity. But at my age, the years are just sort of flicking past. A while ago, I bought a whippersnipper. And because I thought I was about to be retrenched and become a hobby farmer, I bought a commercial one with a thousand-hour engine. It's a Dolmar and it's going really well. The other day I realised that must have been about 20 years ago. <laughs> the redundancy started in 94 and it was soon after that that I started thinking about this hobby farming thing. Life really is incredibly short, whether we get to 70, 80 or 100. And this is definitely not heaven. Troubles are to be expected. And some people seem to have a massive dose uh, of the troubles and suffering that come in a fallen world. In the end, as the psalmist says, we fly away and we know from other scriptures that there's only two destinies that we fly away to, either with God eternally or shut away from the joy of his presence eternally. That's what's ahead for all of us. I've got a neighbour who thinks when you're dead, you're dead. He's wrong. It's what God says that counts not what you think. Verse 11, If only we knew the power of your anger, your wrath is as great as the fear that is your due. Having thought about how short life is, the writer wishes he understood God's anger better. That seems to be an odd thing to want, but it is for a very good purpose. Preachers like Spurgeon have expressed a wish to see just how terrible hell is so that they'd have an even greater concern for lost people who need to hear the good news about Jesus. Well, how great is the fear that is God's due? Well, he's the only absolute ruler in the universe, and he hates sin. He's all-powerful and can do anything he likes to punish sin. So our fear of him should be very great, and we're told that his wrath is as great as that fear should be. So his anger at sin is also very great. So far, the psalmist has thought about God and how he's always there. He's thought about mankind. He's thought about how brief our lives are and how much we ought to fear his anger at our sin. Well, now he comes to some requests. And the rest of the psalm is requests. The first one, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Why did that do that? 
What does it mean to number our days? I don't think it means that we should write on the calendar 25,732 today and 25,733 tomorrow. He means teach us to remember how short our life is with compared, compared with eternity and help us not to waste one of the days that we are given. In 2016, how many days did you go to bed thinking, today I did everything God wanted me to do? I don't think I had too many of them. How many days did we live asking God throughout the day what he wanted us to be doing? Wisdom is having eternity in mind every day. That's how we should be living. With, we obviously have to live in the present, but we need to live in the present with our eternal future in mind. The next request. Return, Lord. How long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. Now, if you've got an NIV in front of you, it may say relent there, but the word is exactly the same as verse 3, turn back or return. And the contrast with verse 3 is in verse 3, it's God saying, you're going to die, return to dust. He, he decides when that happens. But here it's us asking the Lord, when are you going to come? When are you going to do something about our situation? A lot of the lament psalms have this question, how long, meaning how much longer do we have to put up with this present situation before you intervene for us? And for almost 2,000 years, the church has been asking this question about Jesus' return. And the answer has always been the same. Peter gives us the answer in 2 Peter 3, 8 and 9. Verse 8 says, With the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. Have you heard that somewhere before today? Verse 9, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. The only thing delaying Jesus' return is God's desire for more people to come into his family and not be eternally lost. The next request, satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. This is a request, but it seems to me that it's one that we have a part in providing the answer to this prayer. Unfailing love here is that hesed word that Bill's taught us about. Primarily, it means the guaranteed loyalty to this covenant that God has established with his people because of his infinite love for them. Never call it a contract. A contract sort of implies that there's two parties and each gets something out of it. But these covenants that God has entered into with us, they're all his side. All the, all the good things just come from him to us. And we aren't aren't asked much in, re in return to that. So this is God's unfailing love and the psalmist is praying that we will be satisfied with it. This love uh, that God has shown us is stronger than mother love. In Isaiah 49 verses 15 and 16, God asks the question, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. 
See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Engraving is a bit more serious than tattooing. And we're on the palms of God's hands. He sees us always and he has us uh, in his heart always as well. We have the whole Bible uh, as evidence of God's unfailing love and our own history of his care for us. What we need to do is to remind ourselves of this love and let it soak in. Our trouble is that we're sucked in by the advertising industry to the idea that uh, satisfaction comes from things and that the evidence of God's love is that everything is going well. My sister-in-law Jane shared a quote on Facebook this week. Faith is not about everything turn out, turning out okay. Faith is about being okay no matter how things turn out. And that's pretty right. And I'd like to add, our faith is also about everything turning out okay in the end. Because that's what God's plan is for us. Everything's going to turn out perfectly, not just okay. Strangely enough, some of our brothers and sisters experience ex extreme persecution and they're still singing for joy and are glad. Like Paul and Silas in jail, they're more aware of God's unfailing love than of their awful situation. Another request, make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen trouble. This is a very natural request for people living under the old covenant where material blessings were promised uh, for obedience. And God won't mind us praying that either. But there's no promise of continual good times in the new covenant. There are two reasons for God's people suffering. The first one is that we live in a world where we all want to say, I did it my way. The world is like it is because that's always been our choice. The second reason is that God uses suffering to refine his people, to grow them in their faith and in their character. Isaiah 48, 10. See, I have refined you, though not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. And he goes on in verse 11 to say, For my own sake, for my own sake I do this. How can I let myself be defamed? I will not yield my glory to another. The furnace of affliction sounds a lot more serious than most of our troubles. But we have brothers and sisters who are experiencing that level of testing. Every day in many countries in the world, believers in Jesus face the possibility of arrest and imprisonment without trial or being beaten to death by angry Hindus, Muslims, Buddhists or communists. And apart from the refinement we need, notice the other aspect of this that I read in verse 11. It's so that God's name is not disrespected. The universe will only work properly when everything is done for God's glory. Another request, verse 16. May your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to their children. This is a great request. Lord, we want to see you at work among us and we want you to reveal yourself to our children so that they come to love you as well. Well, the Bible is full of examples of God's great deeds. A nation of slaves cries out to God for him to do something. 
He sends the plagues on the nation of Egypt and his people are released to go to the promised land. Then they're trapped beside the Red Sea and God opens the Red Sea and they cross on dry ground and then he brings the water back to drown the Egyptian army. They have no water, God provides a spring. They have no food, God provides manna six days a week for nearly 40 years. They need to conquer the tribes living in the promised land but they've got almost no military experience. God enables them to win many battles and occupy the land he promised them. Then you've got all through the period of the judges, God raises up deliverers when the people cry for relief. And a few hundred years later, the Assyrians were threatening Jerusalem. And God told Isaiah, they're not going to come in. And the, the army went away. When the captives in Babylon have, gone, have done their time sorry, in uh, exile, God changes empires. And Cyrus sends the Jews back to Jerusalem. That's the most unlikely thing for an emperor to have done when he took over uh, from the, the Babylonian Empire. But God spoke to him and he did it. What about the New Testament? The Gospels are full of Jesus changing people's lives. Lepers, cripples, blind men, even dead people. He said that all the miracles he did were works that his father gave him to do. And when he was back in heaven, the church saw God at work. There was spectacular growth at the beginning of the church. And then the, the leader, or one of the key leaders in the church, Peter, was in jail, about to be executed. The church prayed and God sent an angel who brought him out of the jail. Paul and Silas were beaten and jailed. God released them by an earthquake. Paul and Luke are in a shipwreck in the Mediterranean. God arranges that all 276 people on that ship get safely to shore, even though in those days very few people could swim. Are we praying for God's deeds to be shown here and in the world? Do we really want to see him converting people, people who might have addictions and problems and things and have them join us here? Or do we just want to go through the motions on Sunday and enjoy some of our friends that we meet here. On a broader scale, are we asking for God to show his hand in regime change in North Korea, Zimbabwe, Saudi Arabia, Vietnam, Syria, etc.? I hope we are praying for these things. But are we too comfortable to be praying for God to work here by converting lots of people that we mightn't be terribly comfortable with? He finishes up, May the favour of the Lord our God rest on us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. This is a beautiful request. May God's graciousness rest on us. We actually need God not to give us what we deserve, but to continually show us his favour. Let's notice that this is what is happening in our lives and be thankful. Then the psalmist asks twice that God would establish the work of our hands for us. Again, I think we have to understand the old covenant to see what the psalmist is meaning here. God promised Israel that if the people obeyed him, they would prosper. They would, whatever they planted, they, their harvests would be great. He would send the rain at the right times for farming. When they built city walls, they would survive and they would protect the people. But because they didn't obey, they were often under attack. Crops were stolen or destroyed, buildings wrecked, ultimately even their temple 
was destroyed. So the psalmist is asking for God's covenant blessings to be restored, which is only possible if the people are prepared to be obedient. Willingness to obey God was a prerequisite to any of that happening. Well, how does this part of the psalm apply to the work of our hands? Well, I think obedience is still going to be essential. And Paul tells us this about what God wants us to be doing. Second, uh, this is Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. For it's by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, God's work of art, if you like, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Here we find out why we're saved and why we're left here. We've been made alive as believers in Jesus to do good works. And God designed these good works that he wants each of us to do before he created the universe. Do you see how important this makes every day of your life? There are things he wants done and with his help we can do them. But only if we're willing. When we prefer to do our own thing, they won't get done. We could pray this last verse like this. Lord, help me to do today what you planned for me to do today. Because God has a plan from before the world was made of what he wants us to do today. And that applies every day. So what have we seen in this psalm? First of all, there's a reminder. God is always there and has always provided all we need. And we should probably start every day thinking about that. There's a second reminder. Our lives are extremely short compared with eternity, no matter how old we might get to be. A third reminder. God's judgments are serious and our sins make him angry. But then we've got these requests and we can identify with these as well. Help us to have eternity in mind today. Help us to number our days, that is, think about how short our life is. Secondly, may we see you at work among us and revealing yourself to our children. That's a good prayer. Please keep giving us grace, not what we deserve. Another thing we could be praying every day. And finally, help us today to do the things to do the good things that you want done. If you want to know some ideas about the good things that God wants done, have a look at Isaiah 58. And there God talks to the Israelites about how he hates their religious ceremonies and their fasting. And he tells them what he'd prefer that they did. So have a look at that when you get home. Isaiah 58. You can also have a read of the Beatitudes and what Jesus says there about what he wants kingdom people to be like. And then if we daily ask God to help us do the good things he wants done, my, our lives might be different. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we don't just have to sit around fearing what the Putins and Trumps and other leaders might have for us in this year. Thank you for the reminder that you have always been there, you will always be there, and you love us. 
but we've reminded ourselves also that you don't love our sin, you hate our sin. I pray that we will be conscious of these things and that before we choose to do something wrong, we might bear in mind that these things happen in the light of your presence. Help us to want these things that were asked for in the last part of the psalm and help us to make it a daily prayer that that you would help us to do the things that you planned for us to do each day. We commit ourselves to you now and ask for your blessing on every day this year, as many as you give us. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Morning tea will be served out here very shortly. Malcolm has something for us.